0: This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zenwe Yap, and my guest today is Ursel Damal. She runs the Holobion and is a PhD candidate at University College London, after topping her year at Oxford in biomedical science. She has had incredible guests on her podcast, such as Art Louis, and she is part of Nucleate. I have learned so much from her podcast, and I'm thrilled she is here today. Welcome to the podcast, Elso. Thank you. So how's your New year been so far? Were you excited for your New Year?
1: Yeah, it's been good. I, I guess what I'm most excited about it is to get continued with my research. So I am still at the start of my PhD, which means it is like the fast-paced learning part of it, where I'm learning a lot of new techniques, new experimental design, and so on. I guess maybe the fact that I'm still excited betrays that I'm at the start. And when I'm further down, it'll be the last thing I'm excited about, but... So far, I'm excited.
0: Uh, so currently, you're more in the theory part, and then after that, you'll go into like, writing a paper and all of that. And could you tell us about yourself? What made you interested in immunology and what do you seek to achieve?
1: Yeah, so right now, I am a PhD student at UCL. My program is called Experimental and Translational Medicine, but what I'm focused on is immunology. And prior to this, I was also doing biomedical sciences focused on infectious diseases and immunology. I actually started it not for immunology. I was more interested in neuroscience at the time, the neuroscience of sleep and circadian rhythms. That's what I wanted to study. But then there was just something about, I guess, the immunology modules that drew me and that I got interested in. And so what I kind of came to study is more specifically immunotherapies, which In itself is a huge field but it's any interventions that we use to redirect the immune system be that against cancer viruses bacteria or other pathogens and so what i'm especially interested in is the step where we go from like describing the immune response to like engineering it or knowing how to reprogram it so in many cases when you design an immunotherapy you don't necessarily know the nature of the immune response that you want So like if I illustrate when COVID comes around, you know, we have this respiratory virus, we want to design a vaccine against it. We don't necessarily know like what kind of immune response will protect us against COVID. And so how do we infer that? Most of the time you have to look at people who naturally recover from disease and see, okay, so, you know, what immune response did they mount and how is that protective? And then from that, you can then take these principles to design your vaccine. So most of COVID vaccines... They contain a spike glycoprotein like and they elicit neut- something called neutralizing antibodies, which essentially block the, entran- the entry of the virus in the cells. And we knew that because people who are naturally infected have these antibodies to the spike. But then, I guess what we're starting to see is that this response is not so ideal or optimal because people get reinfected with SARS-CoV-2 quite a lot when new strains arise. That's because the neutralizing antibodies aren't very cross-protective. So they, you know, very good at recognizing a specific strain, but when it mutates too much, then it loses protection. So we're starting to see that this might not be the such an optimal response. So what really might be an optimal immune response? And so the research that I'm doing now at UCL is mostly studying people who who naturally control the disease and see what we can learn from them. So what we're looking at right now, and I say we, I mean, it's mostly, you know, previous members of my lab, my PI is called Leo Swaddling, is some people are exposed to SARS-CoV-2 virus, but they never become infected. And we know they are exposed because they have this marker of viral infection that's upregulated, but they don't develop symptoms, they don't develop PCR positivity, and they don't develop antibodies, which typically comes as like a signature of infection. So we started to, to ask, you know, what's special about the immune response of these people? And by looking at their T cells, which is, I guess, the counterpart of antibodies, one of the main two main arms of the immune response, we see that they don't actually recognize spike, but they recognize some proteins of the virus that are a lot more conserved. So we call it the replication transcription complex. It's essentially some really core proteins that are used by the virus to replicate its genome, some stabilizing factors, things to unwind the DNA, the RNA, and so on. So the the individuals who are like these super controllers preferentially recognize these highly conserved proteins and Our research right now, and I guess our goal is to understand why is it that these T-cell responses are better? Why are they more protective? And some interesting findings we see is that because these proteins are more highly conserved, they're actually quite similar between coronaviruses. So even ones that circulate before the whole SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, we actually have coronaviruses that infect us every winter, mostly cause asymptomatic infection. And they also have these RTC proteins and they're similar enough that the immune responses we mounted in prior winters remain and they're the ones that cross-react and cross-protect. And that might be why these individuals are super controllers. But yeah, our goal is to characterize that further and potentially make an updated vaccine with these RTC proteins instead of the spike.
0: Ah, okay, right. I know you went into the coronavirus topic and I would just like to talk about that a little bit. Knowing you come from an immunology background, I was interested to know what your opinion on the future, the direction of the virus, where it's heading.
1: Yeah, very hard to say, of course. One obvious thing is it will mutate. And to a biologist, that sounds like the most obvious thing. But sometimes you hear in newspaper articles like SARS-CoV-2 virus mutates. And it kind of neglects the fact that that, that's the mode of existence of viruses, right? It is to mutate. So of course it'll mutate. The question is in what, like in what direction and what trajectory it will take. So I guess the question of where it will go will be, will it become less virulent? So that, you know, will it create less severe symptoms and disease? And that's sometimes the intuition we have, because we think, you know, it's in the advantage of a virus to not kill us straight away and kind of maximize the time it has to spread through us. And that is the case of some viruses, but it is on much longer timescales. So for example, herpes viruses, you know, they are now, I mean, they do cause disease in some people, don't get me wrong. They cause like infectious mono, they cause some cancers, but in most people, like around 90% plus of us have them and we don't have symptoms, which means over time kind of fine tune this evolution so that, you know, we kind of created this specific coexistence with them, but that... Here I'm talking like hundreds of millions of years for this evolution to occur. I think herpes viruses infected us before we were like humans, even before primates and so on. So obviously for that to happen with COVID that would like require much longer timescales. And then, so yeah, so I, you know whether we'll become less virulent, I couldn't really say so, but if so, you know it would take a lot more time. And then like what kind of variants will emerge it is probably likely that we will have not just the existing strains further mutate but also like new spillover events where other viruses from like the animal reservoirs spill over again into humans and then start their own little story and pandemic. That's because I mean even if you look before the COVID pandemic like there were so many signs that it was likely that such the spillover would occur and coronaviruses have a few properties that make them quite attractive pandemic viruses like some key things are respiratory transmission that's like spreading through droplets and through air is a really efficient way to spread they also can be spread in the asymptomatic phase before you have disease which is also like a game changer for getting a lot of people so that's me getting sidetracked but but yeah it, th- there are many factors that make it that we could have novel spillover events and also the more we encroach on natural ecosystems and the more we come into contact with species that harbor coronaviruses in the wild and that we shouldn't really be coming into contact with but you know maybe we're i don't know like stripping the trees off somewhere to build a new industrial complex or whatever. And that brings us in contact and allows these spillovers to happen. And we have to think that in the, in the whole space of viruses, there's a huge amount of them kind of like teeming to become pathogenic viruses. And it might just take them a few mutation events or a few recombination events where they switch their DNA around. So yeah, unfortunately, there probably will be a lot more of like spillover and then further mutation. But like what the outcome of that will be, I can't, I can't say.
0: Yeah, it's quite tough to predict how bad a virus could get. For example, what you said, it can mutate over time and it could be 100 years, it could be a million years. We don't actually know, but like we hope it won't be too bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, like the question of prediction kind of comes every year with influenza, which in many ways is quite similar to coronaviruses. It's also, for example, it has an RNA genome, also has causes acute infection rather than like chronic infection. And every year, you know, we have to formulate a influenza vaccine. Typically we have like four strains, so some influenza A, some influenza B. And it's really hard to predict like what will be the antigenic changes. And obviously you have to make the vaccine ahead of time, like six months to deploy it in time. And sometimes you get mismatch so you get a gap between what was predicted and what is circulating that winter which means that the vaccines don't protect so you know even six months in advance is a challenge
0: yeah it was actually it brings back memories because well i wouldn't say it's good memories but like straight after i did my exams my whole year group got covid we are quite surprised that it didn't interrupt our exams no one had to skip the exams because of covid but within the whole year group, there were a few who didn't get COVID and some of them got influenza instead. And also I was just thinking about how many mutations are there to come for COVID. Hopefully they're not too many anymore, but whether it will even fit the Greek alphabet anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess if you think of all the spaces it can mutate, I guess you can Think of every amino acid could become every other amino acid, and you see this like huge matrix of virus possibilities. But in practice, most of these variants are not fit enough to survive. So you kind of have viruses. You know, they sample all the mutational space, but few of them actually will have everything it takes to you know replicate in a cell, reform a variant, spread. So evolution is constrained and it can only happen in like some valleys and some avenues. But it, I mean, it does have quite a large space to explore. And the more so, the more opportunities it has to replicate and to like play this experiment out. So the more people have it and the more load there is, so the more like copies of the virus there are in people, the more chances it gets, which is also having fewer people infected worldwide limits. It's ability to evolve potentially dangerous mutations.
0: Just now you brought up about T cells in the immune system. So I'd like to ask a question about CD8 plus T cells. So I know it's the one that is strength strengthens your immune system the most, so that it's better able to attack cancer. Has there been any problems that you or researchers have come across and it's been a little bit strange about these cells?
1: Yeah. So I guess. A huge proportion of biotech and research in immunology is on these T cells. So there's a lot of problems, but I guess a lot of brilliant people are trying to work on them. So CD8, yeah, T cells, they're the cytotoxic T cells, which actually kill their targets. In terms of problems, I guess one of them could be toxicity, and then the second one would be efficacy. So when they actually don't work, that's also a problem. But in terms of toxicity, it's not necessarily a design flaw of immunotherapies, but more of a property. T cells, cytotoxic T cells kill their targets. And when the cells die, they release a lot of danger molecules, a lot of signs of damage, which then make this inflammatory response, which hyper-amplifies and then causes cytokine release syndrome. So in many cases, when the T cell is effective and it does kill its targets, you know, often cancer then that creates this huge systemic inflammatory response with, you know, fever, nausea, rashes, culminating in like or, like multiple organ failure. And so that leads to fatal toxicities. That is something we can treat and we can also reduce by giving therapies when the bulk of target load is less. So, I mean, if you have, if you're treating cancer, you want to wait till there's like fewer cancer cells to like circulating so that there's less of this lysis event which means immunotherapy you often give as a second line treatment first you try to like non-specifically reduce how many cancer cells there are and then you give the therapy so that's one problem there's also some like neurotoxicity which i don't think is quite well explained but i also know that's not my field so i wouldn't know exactly and then i guess the second main issue is when the T cell, the CD8 T cell, recognizes something you don't want it to recognize. So most most of T cell therapies are something called CAR T cells, which means you make them express a CAR, which is a chimeric antigen receptor. It's a synthetic receptor that redirects it to specific targets. And the backbone of it is antibody-based. But there's a different type of T cells, which is, is, I guess, a a bit less frequent which is called TCR T-cells, where, sorry, it's a lot of acronyms, but the receptor they use to target cells is a T-cell receptor, which recognizes them in a different way, fundamentally different way. It recognizes like linear sequences of peptides rather than like big structures that the CARs recognize. And why I'm bringing this up is the T-cell receptors are not exquisitely specific which means sometimes they end up binding to peptides that you are not directing them to, and they end up killing tissues, which are healthy. And there's a big, like, you know, in the the world of biotech, some people are trying to develop TCR therapies against cancer. And they were, they chose a target, which was a melanoma antigen, MAJ3, I think. And when they delivered in the patient, the T cells actually ended up recognizing a protein called titin, which is found on cardiac tissue. And so it started destroying the cardiac tissue and the person went into cardiac failure. So when you have targets that are similar enough, your cytotoxic T-cells might falsely recognize it and you know create off-target toxicity. So, I, so yeah, that's a major problem.
0: So yeah, just now you mentioned about how T-cells could recognize something that you don't want it to recognize. So is that related to cytokine storms?
1: Not exactly. So... The cytokine storm is, even if a T cell behaves exactly the way you want it to and kills the cell you want it to, it might still cause a cytokine storm because in the process of killing cells, the cells are going to release a lot of inflammatory molecules that are going to activate the rest of the immune system. And that causes the cytokine storm, just kind of like a post-response to the killing versus when a T cell recognizes the wrong thing. It you know, it might, you might direct it to some, some melanoma. So, so some, some skin tumor, and it'll end up going to the brain or to the cardiac tissue and directly destroy that tissue there. And cytokines are not necessarily involved. So the way you're causing damage in that case is just the cytotoxic T-cells killing what they're not supposed to. I hope that's clear, but it's, yeah, it's two issues that are a bit different, but I guess right. they could co-occur yeah. and coexist.
0: So so you run the podcast Holobion. What's your favorite episode so
1: far? Mm, Yeah. So I tend to enjoy the ones that are most far removed from the research I do in a way. Because it doesn't just feel like you know an extension of my work or my research. It's something that I only do because I do it on the podcast. And what when you organize an episode like that, you can pick a more like out there topic. That, you know, you're gonna have to research for a few weeks, but you don't have to commit your whole research career to it. So I guess one of the ones I did on polio eradication, number nine, for example, that was very different from what I'm usually used to, because it was more about the public health approach to eliminating polio. So, you know, polio is a very is a virus that causes very severe disease and leaves people like permanently permanently invalidated. And there's been huge efforts to deploy the vaccine in like lower income countries. And it was the work of Ellen Ogden, Ellen Ogden. She worked at the USAID to like organize all the vaccine deployment campaigns, get it to some of the countries. And it shed a lot of light on issues you don't even really think about. So when you're a researcher thinking about like the properties of your vaccine, it's more like some like engineering decisions and so on. But you don't realize what it takes to get, you know, the children in like Afghanistan or India to actually like, you know, get it in their arm. And she was telling some of the stories like that of she was even had to negotiate with, in the DRC, there was there was a war which was preventing the children from getting access to the vaccine. So she went to the rebels and like negotiated a ceasefire so that her team could come in a few days and give the vaccine to the children. Or some people like didn't have official villages and official postal addresses so they couldn't you know be part of like routine vaccination campaigns but then when they would go around in their cars and I think they said they saw some people in a cemetery realized they were like off the grid and so had the kids hadn't been vaccinated and then in all these like bottom-up approaches they could reach everyone so that was quite inspiring to me and in general polio, like the progress that has been made with polio vaccination is really impressive. So polio is not eradicated for the record, smallpox is, but it's, you know, there's still a few, I I, I don't really know, maybe like hundreds of cases every year, you know, Afghanistan and Pakistan primarily, but it's still a huge success story if you look at the whole world of, you know, what we've really been able to do. So that was one I enjoyed and yeah
0: yeah i think it's a it's a very good thing especially doing a podcast where you can learn about things that you might not have ever noticed or you have never seen for example i'm a chemist but i'm learning all sorts of like things in immunology and theoretical physics and all sorts of stuff that i would not have exactly gone to look at and researched and so that's that's what i find really interesting i had a listen to episode 13 of your podcast with art louis And I found how computational analysis of protein mRNA is really interesting. And my question is how time consuming can this process be? Because you know, with like a molecule like protein, there are many properties and functions that you might have to have a look at. And because there's there's such a range of different things that could cause something. So I was interested in how computational analysis could help improve and make this more efficient
1: yeah so Ard louis yeah he's a professor at oxford looking at the physics of evolution i think they call it soft matter and they primarily work with theoretical and computational models which i guess allows them to interrogate things they couldn't that just wouldn't be practical or time efficient in the lab i guess like how much it reduces compared to the lab i couldn't really answer that but he did have some really clever ways of showing how you could find some like underlying principles of like mRNA sequence and structure and what really drew me was his argument about like simplicity that there's a bias in nature towards simple outputs those that have a low descriptional complexity and all this they could kind of formalize and quantify with very mathematical models and I guess here, it's not just replacing something you could do on the bench or in the lab, it's exploring it from a very different perspective. And like, even the intellectual tools come from information theory, like algorithmic information theory. And they're describing things that you wouldn't just wouldn't interrogate in wet lab research. So I'm not sure that answers your question. But I guess doing theoretical research also asks you to allows you to ask questions that aren't just faster and more efficient than the ones you do on the bench but are just like completely different and opening like yeah I guess like paradigms to look at biological processes
0: yeah in computational chemistry you look at maybe the symmetries of a molecule like say amines I I know amines don't really have any symmetries but I was quite interested in how is it a big part of protein mRNAs like having to look at the molecule understanding the molecule through computational chemistry
1: yeah so I think my protein mRNAs is going be like coding RNAs that encode proteins how important their structure is I guess yeah because actually often in biochemistry textbooks you see mRNA just being like a line just like this you know wavy squiggly line but they actually have additional secondary structure that is sometimes important so sometimes they the secondary structures form these like loops that open and close and in doing so integrate signals from the environment and unfolds to allow expression to occur. And how much of that can be predicted computationally, that is absolutely not my area of expertise, but there's definitely a lot of interesting things to do because you can repurpose these like foldings and secondary structure patterns to kind of put some conditions on the expression of your RNA. So maybe you can put a loop and this loop will only unfold if you if it if you give it an inducer, and you can decide what that inducer is if you engineer it cleverly, and that opens up, you know, programming RNAs to pr- perform in the way you want it. But I don't know; I don't know much about this area. So, I find it
0: really interesting in how computational analysis and For example physics and chemistry can be all related and interlinked even with biology and especially in how like for example physics you don't really think about you can't really see with your naked eye that it can be linked to biology but for example you have the pet's and you have all these different machines that you might you have to use a lot of theoretical physics as well i find the i guess the art of linking all these sciences is is quite cool
1: i guess what's really impressive is so you talk about the link between physics and biology. That's kind of what Schrodinger did. So I, I feel like, you know, most biologists would cite him as an inspiration, including Watson and Crick, who discovered the you know the structure of DNA. And Schrodinger published his book in 44 called What is Life, where he essentially showed that physics could be applied to biology. And before, you know, biology has always been kind of clouded by, by the fact that you know, there's a principle of life. It cannot be explained simply by physics and chemistry and all the vitalism. And Schrodinger said, actually, no, no, we can absolutely apply the tools of physics. And he started describing DNA as a, like a periodic crystal and how that molecule could encode information. And all this was before we knew that this molecule was DNA, before we knew its structure, but he was making all these claims and kind of beckoning biology in the realm of physics and that opened up so many tools of physics to then study DNA which you know that's quite impressive and by bridging these two disciplines I guess structural biology and all of these fields could be pioneered also
0: yeah because previously I used to be really design orientated so I used to be really interested in architecture and design engineering and I did a little bit of research in like through design engineering looking at how i could put together like chemistry and design engineering together so it's like multidisciplinary like you can have you can do all these art and design something really nice but you also have to think about the whole like whether it's possible whether it works so like in terms of spider webs that can be used a lot in architecture so i feel like nothing is really like there's no boundaries to anything it might seem a little odd to Say a chemist going into design, but I think otherwise. Like it's very much possible because in chemistry you learn a lot about the crystalline structures, and you have all those different shapes and geometries in your head, and you just think about what you could use that in design. So I think that's that's pretty cool. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I have another question, and I mentioned that you're part of Nucleate. Could you give us a brief overview of what Nucleate is? what your role in Nuclear is?
1: Yeah. So, so Nuclear is a student led organization and it has for broad mission to help young founders in biotech. So, it, it's entirely student run, which means it's non for profit. And we also don't take equity, which is quite important because we don't, you know, we, we are really there to provide education to young trainees who want to spin out their company, but don't necessarily know how to. So, in practice, We are mainly there for, you know, later PhD students, early postdocs who have interesting technology, which is potentially commercializable, but they don't really know how to go about it. So we run the Activator, which is essentially an accelerator program where we help them to fine tune all the way to potential commercialization. So we do that firstly by helping them to form a team, linking them with MBA students, business students, people with more of the business and economic expertise. We also deliver them with a series of workshops in aspects like investment, regulatory strategy. So in biotech, it's critical on how to get your product approved, intellectual property, all of this guidance, which is not just strictly the tech. And we take them all the way through to a pitch day where we bring together investors and stakeholders in the fields to see their pitch and potentially link them with the people who will be their future partners. Um, And so that's really the core part of Nucleate is to run this activator program. But I guess we also have a broader mission, which is just to like foster community in biotech. So Nucleate is, it's the first time it's running in the UK. It started in the U S so out of the Harvard biotech club, which means that we are also kind of passionate about building a biotech ecosystem in the UK, getting people to meet, getting people to have conversations, and also people from different areas. So some of the PhD students, some of the more research-focused people, but regulators, those that work at, you know, MHRA, regulatory agencies, investors, And getting these people to meet, you know, we organize events with different focus. And so my, so yeah, what is my role? I mainly run the activator. In practice, it's, you know, similar tasks to any accelerator program. That's recruiting mentors, communication with the teams, also working on the content of the workshops. And as in this community building part, it's a bit intermingled with the activator in this first year, since the first year we're in the UK. And yeah, I mean, if, if you have any other questions or if also anyone wants to reach out to me about nucleate and if this program is something you think could help you in your research, I'd be really happy to speak about it more.
0: Yeah, we'll put that in, we'll put that in the link as well. I also had a question on, has there been any project that you have been really interested in have you seen anyone's ideas that were really fascinated and you really thought it's a hit
1: so we're at the start of the program I can't like you know can't really speak about specific teams but I guess in the U.S. there have been prior iterations of the program in a huge range so from more like therapeutics biotech some there's a team called Acoustica Bio that have find a new way to deliver drugs. So instead of intravenously, they have this printable device to deliver them subcutaneously. And that's really exciting. Some glyphic bio, they made a protein sequencing platform to detect low expression proteins. And I, I just state these two because they've actually gone on to be really successful biotechs, which is exciting for us because you know, people come in they're young trainees, maybe they have like one patent or you know, starting to get intellectual property. And then, you know, they come out of the program and a few years later, you know, they're bustling biotech and they it took on. So that's some, I guess, some success stories that have inspired me. And also what's quite exciting is we also have more of an eco truck where we look at some, like, some, some biotech, are more focused on alternative energy and synthetic biology for the environment, sustainability, and so on. So. Yeah, but there's, from seeing the people who are involved, there's a lot of interesting technology. So it's really a pleasure to be, you know, involved in helping them, like, make them alive. Because a lot of technology, and this is something we, you know, fight for in Nucleate, just stays in academic labs. Because people don't necessarily know how to commercialize it, or they don't have the literacy, the skills to make that happen, or they don't have the interest at all. And we're also there to remind them that entrepreneurship and spinning out in divide is an option and uh, it doesn't have to be that segregated from, or like the dirty thing is to, you know, sell out, make money out of it. It's really not as simple as that. And that's a necessary step to make your product come alive. So yeah.
0: I think, yeah, what I was going to say is it's quite interesting to see how people are thinking of, for example, the, the ear printing thing, where it injects the drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So people are thinking of new new ways to to do something that is already existing and something that is a lotified or is um, it's not as bulky, and you don't have to. It's a lot more accessible. But as you said, it's really tough to like bringing it from maybe your labs in college to actually commercial commercializing the idea. So I think it's quite good that is to help. To help keep them inspired and to make sure that they don't, how would you say, they won't just let go of this whole idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the goal for nucleate is to provide all these tools to the founders so that they can, you know, be better informed. And they don't have to do it all themselves. They also, you know, are put in contact with people who do have more of the business background and can do more of the ops and so on. But I guess just providing that information free of access. And as I say, you know, without equity, without taking like a huge portion of the stakes in their company is important and i mentioned that nucleate started in the us i don't want to say they have it better but you know the biotech culture is very different there and universities are a lot more used to you know people tr- wanting to spin out their own entrepreneurial activities which means that transferring your tech is easier you have better terms in terms of how much the university owns Whereas in the UK, what we're also in the long term trying to address is the process of spinning out of the university is often not so great for the founder. So, tech transfer offices, you know, sometimes they take very large proportions of, you know, the intellectual property and it makes the project essentially unfundable from an external perspective because the university has such a taken it, the US an investor. You know, you don't necessarily want to invest in that. And so we want to you know, facilitate all these discussions with the tech transfer offices, renegotiate some terms potentially. And that's a long-term mission that some other members of Nucleate are also working on.
0: All right. So as I mentioned previously, you run Holobion. Could you tell us why you started the podcast?
1: Yeah. So I think it's as simple as I listen to a lot of podcasts and found them very helpful for my degree and also just for my personal culture and then wanted my own, but I did. So this was a lot during the pandemic, actually, where I also had classes interrupted. And so I turned to, so I did have lectures still, but I turned to a lot of external sources of, you know, content to keep abreast of the science and mostly of COVID. So one big podcast that was an inspiration for me is a series called this week in, and they have this week in virology, this week in microbiology, And they have a journal club format, which means every week they choose a paper and present it, discuss its strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes they also invite the main authors on the paper for them to share the story of how that paper came about. And what was great is it, you know, taught me a lot about just SARS-CoV-2, the pandemic and so on, but also gave a lot of like stories behind the research. You know, it was just more soulful as a paper. And so I really enjoyed that. And realize, you know, I just really enjoy scientists listening to scientists talk about their research. And then there's a second series of podcasts which also like show me content that I wouldn't necessarily get through university just because the stuff they discuss is so new. You know, so I don't want to discount university lectures at all. You know, they're hugely helpful and of great quality, but they typically give you new content on established disciplines. So you would get like the latest of research on HIV, for example which, you know, people have been working on for decades, but you don't have the new research on new topics, like, you know, longevity research, or let's say some people are using psychedelics to treat depression and PTSD that has necessarily already made it in lecture theaters. And, you know, podcasts are a great way to learn about it. Sometimes more informally, sometimes, you know, there's a bit of bogus and so on. But after, yeah, after realizing how much value I got from these podcasts, I thought, well, you know, if I make my own, I can steer the conversations I have and decide who I interview and so on. And yeah, it just started that way. My my goal was really to get in touch with scientists which were broadly in immunology, microbiology evolution, not necessarily in my field immediately. And and I've really loved it ever since. So yeah, I hope I mean, I hope you also find like pleasure in making your podcast, but it's taught me a lot and sometimes I think you know even if I have zero listeners on this episode it's fine because I still like enjoy the process of researching it so much and learned a lot that like that's enough for me
0: yeah it's quite fun because you never know what conversation could come up or what something that you never knew was interesting and has that podcast been a big way that you got interested in your immunology degree
1: so I would say that it it didn't like change my interest into what I'm doing right now as in what I'm doing right now I'd actually kind of decided that I want to do it even before my podcast but it has helped me like broaden my interest quite a lot and especially focus on so I was speaking about public health or I guess just different angles the immunology is actually like huge and just like keeping a to date with what's happening in immunology, like allows you to span many things. And you can, there's this tendency, I like, get just like in every discipline to get hyper specialized. So, even, you know, CD8 T cells, that's like in immunology, people are like, oh, you know, so what immune cell type do you study? And at the Congress, we even have these like little badges at the British Society for Immunology Congress, which is like your cell type. And people it's like, you know, oh, you're a B cell or like you're a neutrophil. And it's like, This is still immunology, but yeah, people get super channeled and I guess running the podcast makes you like sample of of, like many more topics.
0: Yeah. It kind of keeps you interested in the whole area and seeing how there is, there's still a lot that is being explored. People are still covering, coming up with new things. And I would say that podcasts are the way where you can learn it. I wouldn't say easier, but it's accessible. You don't have to exactly go looking for the something new, but you just listen to something and they can come up with something and you can learn something else that wasn't meant to be brought up or something like that. So I think, I think that's why podcasts are really
1: interesting. Um, yeah, like sometimes when you just follow one person or one podcast and then, you know, they kind of diverge in their interest, then you're taken along the ride and you discover things that you wouldn't, you know, go searching for yourself. So that's something I like also personally enjoy when I listen to other podcasts.
0: Is there someone that you've been listening to for a very long time that you just follow him on the journey or? Uh?
1: Yeah. I mean, Lex Friedman probably would be like, is a hugely famous podcaster of, and yeah, he is like excited and interested by many, many things, which means that if you just follow his podcast, you kind of go in like, you know, self-driving cars, computer vision, and then he goes into life in outer space, and then he goes into history and Soviet history, and you get taken along the ride. And I guess it also is a value of podcasting is you get all all the tangents are what kind of makes you come back to it. And you, you know, you get attached to the podcaster, their speaking style, their interests. So yeah, I have actually only discovered him after I created my podcast. But even so, I Listen to him regularly and have you know learns huge amounts from him and also his intellectual humility in speaking to people which I like I admire a lot and you know he has spoken to like like you know like like amazing like, like, like just amazing people but also always has this approach of you know I don't necessarily know or sorry to ask a stupid question which sometimes you know people put that on for false modesty but I. Sent something genuine about it. And that's what also makes me respect him as a podcaster.
0: Is there someone who you're hoping to have on your podcast? Is there the end goal? Is there someone there that you must have?
1: Yeah, I'm still thinking about this one. I actually don't have this, like, you know, like a huge person with like necessarily a Nobel Prize or so on. But interviewing the like my direct supervisors has actually been really fun because. In that conversation, even though I've been working with them for like months and months in the lab, we maybe end up speaking about this, the research we're, we're like working on in a very different way. So that's maybe not answering a question, but I guess if at the end of every research project I do, I speak to the person about it on a podcast, it like gives me a fresh perspective. And so I've really enjoyed the two podcasts I've done with, I guess, my direct PIs in that way. But uh, no, I guess big like dreams. I'm still. It, it is the start of the year, so I, I guess I can still drop the resolutions. But yeah, I do hope to do it for a while and to speak to many different types of people.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Lastly, I've got I've got one more question. So, who inspires you? It's a it's a little bit of a broad question. Who inspires you?
1: Yeah, I guess one thing about this question is people often also maybe answer things that they fit retrospectively. So like, oh, you know, when I was a kid, this person inspired me, but they inspire you now as an adult. But even so, I guess like scientifically, I'm really admirative of scientists who don't just you know, produce brilliant research, but also like, cr- like keep a very complete picture of it and see where it fits in and get people interested in it, which typically comes by writing books about it, speaking about it quite creatively, and getting people involved. And so even going back, one of my like scientific heroes is Jacques Monod. He's like a French biochemist who made like a lot of foundational discoveries in biochemistry, for example, on so allosteric enzymes. He also really discovered that there is a messenger molecule between DNA and protein. And that turned out to be mRNA, this really foundational thing. And also discovered the lac operon, which I guess all biology students probably hate because it's like a first-year lecture type of thing. But it's a simple genetic system where you can sense environmental cues and then really neatly switch on the genes that use lactose, you know, by dual sensing of lactose and glucose. Anyway, but this, this discovery led him to formulate a very like deterministic view of genes. He called called it like a genetic program and he formulated all of that. And that led the way also to the way in which we see genes as like regulatory circuits and things that you can assemble and put together to get a specific function to integrate signals and reprogram and this idea of like genetic modules to recombine. And he really got like a whole generation I think of people fascinated by his research because he wrote a book called chance and necessity where he describes all these findings really eloquently speaking about you know like the implications of these gene systems he speaks about chance and necessity so chance being all the like micro random events you get in biology but even despite that you still can get like transmission of information and then the necessity which is the idea that structure dictates function so a protein like must act the way it does given its structure things like that and he's also quite like i guess books also allow you to be more speculative so at the end he goes on about you know consciousness god the universe goes like you know man is like stranded in this immense universe without god and so on but all this to say that him allowing himself to be more speculative and speaking about his research, not just in scientific terms, really inspired me, inspires me because it gets people like fascinated by the ideas he mentions. And he himself, you know, he was also a World War II war hero who, or I mean, at least he was involved in the French resistance. And I guess even if you see photos of him, he's there with in his in his lab with you know cigarette between his lips, a white tie, like a tie a shirt, a white tie, which is already a, a world that's disappeared, which also is quite, I guess, funny. It's a long-winded winded way to say anyone who keeps a very complete idea of their research and kind of exploits it in all directions, not just scientific, also in its you know, philosophical yeah, implications. And I guess to extend on that, anyone who came up with concepts, I'm always really admirative of that because... It is one thing to collect data, but then to really come up with a framework in which the data makes sense, that requires a lot of creative input. And so in immunology, there's like a huge concept, which is self and non-self. So, you know, you tolerate the self and you reject the non-self and kind of coming up with that way to look at the immune system. So that's primarily Peter Medawar, who was working on transplantation and Burnett's. Yeah, I find that quite genial. And then actually, Polly massinger in the 1990s, she updated that concept to say, we don't really just reject non-self, but we reject danger and signs of damage. To update that definition that the immune system sometimes has to destroy what is your own, but damage like cancer or, you know, like ruptured cells and so on. Yeah, so anyone who manages to put intellectual direction in their field like that, because it's just, it's not just knowledge we gain it's it becomes our way of thinking so yeah that's and I guess as I was mentioning people who supervise me day to day are also like sources of inspiration for me and all my mentors I've had inspire me all right thank you so
0: much Russell for this episode I was really interested in the whole the cd T cells part and in immunotherapies and talking about podcasts we'll put a link to your podcast and website and contact so thank you
1: Okay, great. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much.